you're serious about betting, this is the podcast for you. Brought to you by Pinnacle.com, the Serious About Betting podcast features me, your host, Ben Cronin, and some of the biggest names and brightest minds in the world of betting. Welcome to another episode of Serious About Betting on the Pinnacle podcast. Today I'm joined by another guest who is certainly very serious about his betting, puts a lot of time into it. I don't think I've seen a a day go by without seeing some form of debate on my Twitter feed that he's involved in. Welcome to the show, Dan Shan. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you, Ben? I'm very well, thank you. I'm I'm excited about today. I know you're you're often involved in sort of betting conversations that that go on online and and stuff like that. So I'm intrigued to see where this this conversation takes us. Yeah, you know, one of these days I have to do something where I uh, answer live questions. I bet that would be fun. That's it. Yeah, nice Q and A or something like that. Um, right. So I I know you've been you've been betting for a while. Um, but I do also know I've chatted to you briefly before, and I know there is kind of a an interesting story behind it all as well. So what was life like? for you sort of before you you spent most of your time betting what did you do before it all um well what i actually did is i did uh, uh forensic uh comparative analysis for uh divorces uh court hearings that kind of stuff and basically what i did was just try to find value of strange things that you can't just look up the value online um maybe uh collector cards uh you know i shit i even did a a fairground one time i had to price out uh you know ferris wheels and things like that for a for a divorce trial. How, how much is a fairground worth then? <laughs> well, it wasn't the actual fairgrounds. It was the uh, it was actually the Ferris wheel and uh, a couple other things. Of some roller coaster, some roller coaster parts and stuff like that, which is kind of unique to find a price for something that's hand custom made and sometimes you know 50, 60 years old. This actual Ferris wheel ended up being worth about thirty six grand, is what I estimated, and it ended up selling for like fifty five. So oh. I, I was a little off. <laughs> I mean, the, it's interesting though, is that there's there is comparisons and certainly connections there to to betting with the like the valuing assets. And I think even if you think about sort of actuary type stuff, we've had a couple of actuaries on here, and the job they do of, of dealing with a lot of unknown information and almost kind of setting a standard for something. So, what was the process that would go into that? There's no one's ever priced up a, a Ferris wheel before. It's hard to get hold of data related to that. So, what would you actually do? Well, I mean, it, you know, the the process kind of. A, originally begins with, you know, raw material costs, you know, what would it cost, you know, how how much would it cost at Home Depot to go get the parts to make this thing? And then, and then you got to understand that, you know, once you take some things and put them together, then the value obviously changes drastically, you know, um, just like a painter, you know, goes and buys some paint and a canvas. Well, the paint and canvas might be worth 10 bucks, but because what he does with the paint and canvas, it might be worth $100,000. And what then, so there's obviously quite a big jump to, to kind of where you are now. What was the reason for getting into sports betting initially? Was there was there kind of a passion for sports? Was it more taking stuff that you'd done for the job? What was those early days of sports betting like for you? Well, originally I kind of got involved with a uh, an arena football team and I was doing some uh, assistant general management stuff and then actually became the general manager for a couple of years. And uh, in that arena football thing, you know, you kind of learned a lot about as you sat and watched coaches set up, you know, the things, their plays for the week and, and the tendencies and the things like that. You started to learn a little bit about, you know, a, a model per se, you know, and that kind of led over. I mean, I've gambled my whole life. My grandpa used to take me to the, you know, the dog track every weekend, you know, bet the dogs. So, I mean, it's not like I didn't gamble, but it was all recreational and I never really put the two together. 
And then, so you mentioned there's sort of a model type approach. And I'm sure when we get into things a little bit later, we'll find out more about the kind of stuff that you're you're doing now. But were your early days then at the start, were you like your grandpa sort of down there? Were you were you betting on like a hunch, the favorite team, the classic stuff like the the big markets or whatever it might be? Did you... What was sort of the normal betting activity? Most of my stuff originally was, you know, I bet what everyone else does. You know, I bet pretty much the favorite. You know, I I, I bet the favorite a lot. I bet home teams, uh, mainly NFL. You know, my my favorite sport has always been football. And then as this journey is then progressed was it was it mistakes that you learned that kind of made you made you change the way you bet? Was it more learning from other people? What made you change your ways, as it were? Well, I, I think the thing originally was, was I said, well, you know, I mean, it seems like to me, I kind of thought that I had a good understanding of, of football. So I thought, hey, you know, I can I can sit here, I can look, I can look at some stats and, you know, compare some things, do some comparable analysis on team A to team B and come up with some decent numbers and, and thought that that would be a winning method, which of course it's not, you know, it's just too tough. So when, I mean, there's a lot to, to kind of unpack in those early days, the, the kind of valuing assets for divorces, the arena football stuff, and then sort of getting into betting and whatnot um i think there's also a little am i right in thinking you did some past work actually on the the operator side of things working with with a bookmaker and stuff like that is is that correct um that wasn't the original i actually did a, i bet for a few years um as income you know i would say as a i don't, don't want to say a pro better but i mean as a pro better i bet for about a year year or two maybe before i actually ever got connected with any kind of operator stuff. And then with the operator stuff, all I ever originally really ever did was create opening lines, you know, and creating an opening line is pretty simple. I mean, in comparison to trying to get a model that's going to beat the, you know, beat the juice. So I did a lot of opening line stuff with operators. And then did you, did you get a chance to, I mean, obviously the, the interesting part of that would then be in seeing, seeing what goes on with the markets after those openers. Was there, did you get a chance, even if you weren't involved with it, did you get a chance to, to have more insight into that side of the industry or, or was it the kind of thing of you set the openers and, and kind of wash your hands with it and that's your, your involvement done? Um, pretty much my job was pretty much just doing the opening lines. But I did question a lot and ask a lot of questions when I see a line move, like, why was I wrong? Why was I off? Why did it move so much? And I got a lot of insight from that. I learned a lot about how they, you know, how they stick a hook out there. And if they got bites and if they're getting nibbles, they're not going to move the line, even though they're getting nibbles on that side. You know, you kind of get away from a little, I don't want to say get away from, but you move from the true probability enough, maybe not to kill yourself for the big, but enough to draw activity, you know, to get some bets. And although you you, you said there that, that kind of setting the openers is is simple, it's, it's easy and throwing it up there, but there obviously is a, a little bit of work that goes into it. And I'm sure some people listening to this will be intrigued from a from a book, bookmaker side of things, how actually openers are are created. So what was the the process there? What what did you sort of work with in order to find those opening lines? Well, well what I, well, most of the time, what you usually do is you're just using a, a basic comparative analysis. You're looking at, you know, uh, you're getting a, a power ranking, you're creating power rankings for all the teams, and then you're making slight adjustments based on what you think there might be a little bit of bias. Um, you know, if you got a, a team like the New York Giants who lost 10 straight games and you got a team like the uh, Chiefs that won 10 straight games, you know, the, the probability might truly be Kansas City minus 13, but because Kansas City is so popular, you're going to get a little bias there. They might end up, you might end up moving that about, you know, 14 or 14 and a half, maybe even 50. And then if we, if we fast forward quite, quite some way to, to where you're actually at now, can you maybe 
give us a, a little bit of insight into how you think people can can achieve success in betting. Kind of what what is it that helps you get an edge over the market in in terms of what you're doing day to day, sort of as of now? Well, for me now, the thing is, is that I mean, you've talked to me a ton, and I've talked to you probably read a billion times. I truly believe in line value. I truly believe in closing line. I think closing line is the most accurate thing there is, and I think it's really hard for people to have a model or something that's better than the actual closing line. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it's really hard. So I would say to someone that's getting in or trying to make that move to where they actually get an edge to really avoid assuming or thinking that they can do better than the closing line. And so when you come back to my approach, you get to the thing where I'm trying to find early where the line isn't efficient yet, where uh, I find spots where, let's say we're not really certain whether Patrick Mahomes is going to play this week. So maybe that line isn't really ripe yet. Maybe that line's going to have enough movement to be able to create an edge, you know, to give me a little expected return, you know? So the the closing line is, is kind of the gold standard for you. That's like the, the aim or what you're working towards. My goal, when I put together and I sit down and I do power rankings and I'm I look at a game, my goal is to try to anticipate what the closing line will be. And I would base my success for the week or the day or what I'm doing on how close my estimates are to the actual closing line. And is the, you, you talked about sort of the comparative analysis that, that went into the openers when you're doing so, something on the, the bookmaker side of things. In terms of data that, that you're using now, are we looking at performance-based stuff? Are we looking at market-based stuff, a mix of the two? What, what sort of things are you looking at? Well, for the power rankings and the things that I do for the teams specifically, you're looking at totally line stuff. You're looking at total, you're just looking at the actual closing line of the past games to generate a power ranking. Now, the adjustments come into a lot into the performance standards. Um, you know, you're looking more for when I'm going to adjust, say uh, team A is 10 and team B is six. So team A is four better. Well, now if a player's out, then I'm going to have to look at a lot of performance things and make adjustments based on those performance things. So would it, would it kind of be fair to say then that you're, you're, you're not trying to be better than the bookmaker. You're just trying to be quicker than the bookmaker. I'm trying to find the spots where maybe they're hedging too much. Sometimes a bookmaker will lay off a line long enough because they're waiting to see if if someone's going to play or there's some things that are open still that they haven't got to yet. So yeah, probably trying to be a little bit ahead of, but you got to realize the book, the bookmaker has a job and their job is to get action. If they, if they came out and set a line and left that line where it's at and let's just pretend that line was perfect, they wouldn't get any bets. They'd be out of business. So they have to wiggle and move around and fish in different spots to make sure they catch some fish. If they don't get any fish, there's no way to make any juice. And how do you, the question then would be, how do you know you're not, you're not one of those fish that, that are cat, that they are catching and, and kind of taking money off of you? What's the, what's the approach to make sure you're not like the rest? Well, that would be the closing line. If, if I'm betting at minus 12 and it actually ends up closing at 14 and I picked it to be 14, then I'm not one of those fish. And with the, so the, the data that's being used, the market stuff and, and whatever it might be, if someone's listening to this and they, they kind of, a, a light bulb has, has gone off in their head and, and they think I want to I want to do what Dan Shan's doing this sounds like a, a great idea how do they go out and I mean first and foremost what what exact data are you using and then the, the follow-up to that would be how do you access it um, how do you know what's useful and what's not 
Well, I mean, the, the, the most important thing, obviously, is the lines. You need the closing lines for like the last 10 games. I use about 10 games, depending on the sport. But in general, about the last 10 games, I use the closing lines. The second thing that you're going to need to look at is you've got you to gotta create some kind of standard for player adjustments. Um, you know, if you look at like somebody like uh, Poker Joe, he uses, well, he used to use, I don't know if he still uses, but he used to use a lot of like the EA ratings for American sports, like... Uh, the video game ratings for the he uses a lot of those ratings and then makes adjustments based off of those ratings and then he also you know will take players that have high enough value where they actually affect the line and he actually creates like a power ranking system for them so if if ben, if, if if someone's out if a, a major player's out he's got an adjustment for that that's pretty quick and having that adjustment ready is very helpful because the line's going to do some tricky things as soon as they announce that a starter's out a major quarterback's out or something like that is it is it a case of you know the the classic adage of of don't work hard work smart is is that what we're saying there's a lot of information out there that kind of does the work for you already and it's more a case of utilizing that and and taking it and using it for your benefit rather than bending over backwards to try and build these models and and stuff like that well i i think for the for a typical person i think that what a person should do is just basically i think look look if i was starting today fresh right now today this very moment had no idea what i was doing what I would do is I would just take the power rankings from Dan Shan, Massey Peabody, and the SAG ratings. I would take all those. I would combine them together, get an average. And that's what I would use as my power rankings. I wouldn't adjust or move them or even care about them. That would be my power rankings. And I would focus 90% of my energy on player adjustments, player ratings, and player things. And, you know, injuries, weather, home field advantage, those kind of things. Those, those kind of things are the things that create bias. Um, you know, if it's snowing heavy in a, in a game that's going to be tomorrow, everyone's going to bet the under. I mean, that's just a given. The under is going to drop 10, 8, 10, 7, 9 points, whatever. It's going to drop a ton. And because of that, and because of that bias, there's probably an opportunity there. So if you can come up with a good system to where you know when the weather says it's going to be 20 mile an hour per winds and it's going to be heavy snow, and you can come up with a number that's probably better than the rest of the market's got, you got an advantage. And when you, you talk about player, I mean, a lot of that stuff is your, there's a lot of information to keep track of. And, and some people often argue that you're, you're better off just looking at things for, for what they are in terms of numbers. But do you feel, and I, I get the sense from you that you're, you're very much immersed in sport from a, from a fan side of things as well, knowing the, the players and, and everything like that and recent past records, historical games and whatnot. Are you, are you a fan of these sports that you bet on? And, and do you think that, that that gives you an advantage when you're, when you're betting? I bet Euro basketball every day and I can't, I can't even pronounce the names. <laughs> so no, I, I wouldn't say that, that it's, that it's, it's something about, you know, like having some kind of insight to the actual players. It's pure numbers. It's just looking at what they've done. It's looking at how much they've moved the line. I can tell you the value of a player in five minutes. If you just tell me what games he missed out of the last 20 and you can just see quickly if he's in, they're minus four. If he's out, they're even. So he's worth four points. It's that simple. And you're, I mean, you mentioned EuroLeague there. I know, I know you're into the NFL and we kind of talked a little bit about soccer and what you're doing on the side of things there. Can you, can you maybe give us a, some more insight into the, the types of sports that you're betting on, the league specifically, maybe markets that you look to attack? Um, any, anything, anything major soccer, you know, all the major soccer's EPL, you know, um, Champions League, all that stuff I bet all the time. Premier League, you know, um, 
So I bet any, a lot of major soccer. I love esports. I think CSGO is a money pit. <laughs> I can't believe people don't bet crazy in CSGO. I think, and, uh, you know, I think Pinnacle does one hell of a job in setting lines for esports. It's amazing how close and accurate they are. But I think that there's a lot of movement in those lines and small bets can create big opportunities for people like me to come in and swoop some stuff up. And is it a lot of people, a lot of people say it's kind of the, the opportunity across more, more niche markets. And when you, when you say things like the, the big leagues in soccer or, or NFL and, and even to a point now CSGO. And, and I think you're right in the fact that I like the term money pit, but the fact that there's not a lot of attention that's paid to those markets from, from betters and, and some bookmakers specifically as well. But is the reason for not looking at, at uh, niche markets where there may well be a bigger edge. Is it to do with the, the the limits that you require and sort of the amount that that you're betting in order to to kind of make your money? It, it's less that I'm making such you know it's less that I'm making huge bets and that I need these huge limits to to go. No, it's more along the lines of I trust the closing price. I trust the limits. I think let's let's look at Pinnacle. Pinnacle's pretty good at their job. You agree? Yeah, they're good at their job. They make pretty good money. They pay all their money. <laughs> I hope so. They're pretty good at what they do. So I think it would be in my best interest to try from the other side of the table to try to do what they do. They have more confidence in this game, in these markets. So maybe I should. Um, I don't think it's uh, picking at the, the scraps on the side, these alt markets and, and niche stuff is, is the ideal way to go. I think you can have a more stable, steady income in major markets because of the higher limits and the more accurate lines. So if you're and the data you're getting when you when you talk about the the closing lines and, and working out your adjustments and things like that, are we looking at a, an automated process? Are you scraping? You've got like APIs and things like that. How do you actually get access to all this data that is clearly so valuable to what you're doing? Well, I mean, a lot of the data is just basic data, you know, closing lines, um, you know, player stats, that's all basic data, but all the work is manual. The adjustments are manual. If, if LeBron James doesn't play tonight and the Lakers line goes from minus six to minus two and it closes minus two, the Lakers aren't a true minus two. They're a true minus six. So I have to adjust them to a minus six, even though they closed at a minus two via the API feed because LeBron didn't play. So there's a lot of manual work in there. And is the manual work in terms of researching the bets and finding the, the edge and, and what it is that you want to bet on? What about the actual process of, of betting then? Is that automated at all when you're, I know you're quite a high volume better in terms of the amount that you're, you're betting with, with the number of bets. So is it when it's kind of getting bets down, finding the best line and, and all the other kind of stuff that goes into the, the action of, of placing bets? Have you, do you automate any of that or that, is that again a, a manual process for you? That's the fun part. Who would automate that? <laughs> Why would anyone automate the only part that's fun, the actual place in the bed and cracking open the beer and getting excited and screaming at the TV? That's the great part. No way. I would never automate that in any way, shape or form. The, I mean, obviously the fun part, there is a lot of fun that goes into it, but sometimes in, in betting things don't don't go to plan, I guess. And there is some some failure that people have to deal with and, and getting things wrong. And I'm, I'm sure you'll, you'll be the first to admit that, that that does happen and people have to deal with the losses. So... When that happens to you, how do you how do you deal with with it when things go wrong? The the kind of how do you find the perseverance to to work to the end goal? Well, you know, 
I always try to focus on the line value. At the end of the day, when the markets are all closed and everything's done, I, all I really want to care and, and concern myself with is the line value. Yeah, I want to win. Of course, everybody wants to win. I want to win every game I bet, but we know that's not going to happen. You know, the, the, the fun and exciting and interesting part of this whole thing is if I got 30 bets for the day on the sheet and I got an expected, you know, say they've all closed and I see my expected returns should be somewhere around two or 3%, that process from that moment on when they kick the ball and start the game, anything can happen. And that's beautiful. That's the fun part. That's the that's the amazing, you know, adventure. Those 30 bets are going to pay you the 2%. Sometimes they're going to pay it today. Sometimes they're going to pay it 20 percent today. Sometimes they're going to pay a negative 20 percent today. But in the long run, they're going to pay the test. And what I mean, it is it is obviously fun, enjoyable betting, especially when things go right. What about the the stuff that goes in before that moment of, of watching the game and, and seeing your bets? How much work exactly does it take? You know, if, like I said at the start, if we if there's someone listening to this and they think I want to be like Dan Shan, I want to do this, I want to do that. How would you prepare them for the amount that you actually put in? Like, is it when we say full time job, forty plus hours a week? What's it like for you? You know, Ben. You, if I tell you how how many hours a day I work a, a day, you would you wouldn't believe me. But it's intensive, and it's tons of hours and tons of time, tons of uh, tons of spreadsheets, um, staring at you know spreadsheets, um, doubting the the changes that you made, uh, seeing a line go the wrong way. It, it is a long, hard process. I, I work guarantee you a minimum twelve hours a day seven days a week and is it is it purely financial driven do you get a kick out of the the challenge of trying to beat the market or be the guy that can make the money off the bookmaker what is it that really drives you to to put that much into it then to be right, to know that all the things that I've done and all the craziness that I put together and I come up with minus 14 and it's sitting at minus 12 and it moves to minus 14, to be right is what it's all about. I probably don't, I probably don't even, I mean, I, I could... Mm, I, I could probably finish life out and not have to work if, if I stopped today. But to be right is a great feeling because this stuff is hard. This stuff is hard. and You know it's hard. Is it? Is it a case of then, so let's say two scenarios, and I mean, I'm sure you experience this daily, um, but you'd much rather lose a bet and knowing that the number moved for you than, than get the, the winning bet and, and get something wrong with the number actually go against you. I would rather win a bet and have a bad number one time. But if you're talking about over... Uh, 100 games or 200 games, I want the number to be right. But if you're asking me if I want to win this bet, the next bet I got coming up, G2, not two, I want to win that baby. Well, um, so then if the things do go wrong and you whether it's you, you get a bad number and the bet comes in, whether you get a, a, a good number or, or whatever it might be, like you, you do lose bets, obviously. So how do you know when things are going wrong? Like at what point do you do you realize that, that kind of what you're doing might be wrong? It might already have been picked up by the market and accounted for. Like what is the, the process of, of working through that? Well, I mean, it's pretty simple for me. It's basically, I take, say there's, I mean, what is there? There's like 10 Euro Cup games today. I'm going to model all 10 of those Euro Cup games. And when I'm going to have a closing line estimate that I create. And when I look at the end of the day, I'm going to check all 10 of those games. And if I'm not real close on all 10 of them, then I'm wrong. That It's that simple. It doesn't matter the result. It doesn't matter what my ROI ends up being. My projected closing lines need to be very darn close to the actual closing lines and not just the games I bet. So is that, I mean, the, the, the 10 figure, is that when we talk about sort of sample size and things like that, is it, do you use that as a, was that an arbitrary example or is that actually for you a, a, 
a 10, 10 match run or whatever it might be is enough to, to really give you what you need in terms of the information? No, I, I wouldn't say there's, there's a solid number that I, that I sit on. But like if I had a day to day and let's say I was off, say there was 10 games and I was off on six or seven of them, that would, that would make me real alert. Then I would do tomorrow's games. And if I was off again, like on, you know, five, six of them or something and it was that bad, then I probably would shelf the model. Take a look, go back and see where I'm missing something. See where I'm wrong. And what is the, what is the kind of in the, your career to date? What is the, the usual life cycle, life cycle of a, of a model? I know that's probably a very difficult question to answer because there are very different types of models that are being used. But how long, if you find an edge for a certain approach or whatever it might be, how long does that tend to last you before the, the market is, is picked up what you're doing and, and adjusting for it? Well, the thing is, is that. It's not really my model. It's more the closing line. And if the closing line starts to be not efficient or is wrong or is not there, you know, if there's starting to be too much, you know, maybe there's some bias, maybe there's some things going on, you know, like with, with a perfect example is EPL. They had, you know, this craziness with all these VARs, you know, and the, the goals were just going nuts. You know, I mean, it was like everything was just completely way off. You know, expected goals was way off. They were scoring like crazy. Um, there was a bunch of goals getting removed. There was, I mean, all these things were happening. And it felt like at that time in the middle of all those, the totals were getting a little weird. Where I was coming up with, say, 2.37 goals projected and the line would close at 2.87 or 2.97 because it was just really getting weird. And that would be something that would make, you know, the model need to be adjusted. Uh, maybe I'm not adjusting enough for what I consider, you know, bias, you know, one of the biases that may be. And if you're, I mean, you mentioned their expected goals. So if you're, if you're using metrics like that, or there's an awareness of metrics like that, then I assume that's, that's got to play some part in, in terms of what you're doing. So how much, if we were to split your approach in terms of percentages, how much of it is driven by the market and how much of it is driven by other, other data points that are out there? I would say majority of it's going to be the market price. Market closing price is what's going to be be the biggest factor on me because I feel that the market price is my opinion, your opinion, and 10 other smart guys, right? I mean, that's just common sense, right? And and I would rather have those 10 opinions than just mine. I think the opinion of 10 smart guys compared to my dumb opinion is a lot better. So I really, really, I really don't see those things because if the market starts to change, the lines start to change. So if the lines start to change, then my model starts to get better. But sometimes there's some lull in there. You know, you'll see some bad times. And is the so if you're you're using the closing line and you so you, you determine your edge when it comes to your your betting. Is it relative to the edge that you believe that you have? Or you, what, what do you do? Is it flat staking? The, what's the approach? I pretty much do the bet X to win one. So whatever it takes to win one unit is what I bet. If that's what you're asking me about on a staking myth wise. So in, in on favorites, I might end up betting 200 to win 100. On underdogs, I might be end up betting 20 to win 100. And then if, if things do go wrong and, and obviously if, if you're leaning towards more favorites just because that's the way things have fallen how do you how do you avoid things I mean that quickly become sort of talking of like sunk cost fallacy or whatever it might be and and throw money into something that may not eventually pay out how do you approach that and, and be wary of throwing good money after bad the, the, the thing is is that when you look at like like for me I really like alternate lines because I feel like alternate lines are derivatives and they, they're not what somebody's actually focused and put an energy in. And I think that alternate lines can be a real opportunity for someone. But unfortunately for me and the way that I do business, I can't really mess with alternate lines because like I just said, I don't think that they're truly as efficient. So I'm almost forced to work in the major market up front. I don't think I really answered your question, but I, I was trying to 
go off on how the, like, I understand that, like, when I, if you ask me if, if, if someone's doing well, most of the guys that do well, they probably do well in those niche markets, alternate lines, those kind of things. That's where the, that's where the gravy is. But for me, I really can't do that because we're all kind of under the impression that alternate lines are basically derivatives of the main line and a little bit of money can really move them and make them not quite as efficient, which would be bad for me since my modeling and my system is based off line efficiency. Um, so I've seen a lot of things on, on your Twitter activity and you actually mentioned earlier about esports and the, the money pit or the money pool or, or whatever it is that you called it. A lot of our listeners here will, will probably be more interested in the, the traditional side of things. I mean, obviously me working for Pinnacle, I, I know how big esports is and, and how rapid the growth has been specifically to, to the betting side of things. But can you tell us a little bit maybe about the differences between the two from what you've seen from a, from a market perspective and exactly why you think there's so much fruitful ground there to explore from a, from when you're, you're betting? I, I think that esports, I mean, let's talk about CSGO because that's more where I specialize in. I kind of stay away from Dota and uh, LOL. I'm kind of scared of those things. Uh, uh, Dota and LOL scare me because there's so many things going on that you can't actually see it unless you understand the game. But then I guess the, the, the question would then be is if you're, if you're purely using the market and stuff, do you, do you even really need to know if you're not betting live? For me personally, I focus on CSGO. I almost always exclusively find value on the other side. And when I call it the other side, what I mean is pretty much everyone in CSGO seems to bet on the team that chose that map. And then on the third map, say it's a best of three, on the third map, they always, always choose the favorite. So if that's what's happening, it seems like to me that most of the opportunities come in on the other side and the other side being the person, the team that didn't choose the map. And then on the third map, the team that's the dog. And that's just in general. That's where you usually will see most of the, the spots or holes in in CSGO. Yes, it's quite interesting, actually. I think we, we've had Adam Booth on the, the podcast before, and I know you've spoken to him. And that, that idea of this sort of contrarian approach to it with esports, which is maybe potentially it's so fan dominated, there aren't actually that many shops in the market that, that may sort of present that value um but what are the what are the differences then in terms of your approach is it just a, a one-size-fits-all method across different sports and, and a, i mean specifically sort of sports and esports do you do you change anything that you're doing or, or are they one and the same even though they're completely different well the, all the sports are completely the same to me as far as how i lay it down and do the do the work you know as far as how i come to my number all the methods are the same. The only difference with esports for me is that I'm very hesitant to trust the numbers on a team. I'm very hesitant to trust the closing line on a team that chose the map and is the favorite in it. I feel like that number is going to be a little shaky. The closing line number. And what um what is it you do to to kind of learn and, and develop then as a better and you're you're clearly sort of putting yourself into to new markets and things like that, but I know you speak to a lot of people in the betting community as well. What what resources kind of help you learn more about betting? And I think you mentioned Poker Joe there. Shout out to him for, for a great book. Is is there any others that you use or any other people that you speak to specifically that you think are, are really good for the betting community? Okay. First of all, I don't speak to anyone. I irritate people <laughs> and ask a lot of questions and upset a lot of people. Rarely do I ever have a conversation with someone. Um, no, but one of, some of my favorites are, you know, Poker Joe's one of the guys that I lean on all the time. I like, I, I personally like Poker Joe, not for his models or the things that he does. I like him for his adjustments. I think his adjustment skills are amazing. And I try to learn from his adjustments. I think his adjustments are, are very important. And I try to learn from them. As far as understanding market 
you know, the market, CLV, um, where you're doing good and where you're doing bad. I like Joseph B, you know, it's, it's Joseph Buckdoll, right? Is that how you pronounce his last name? Buckdoll. Yeah, 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 Joseph, yeah. I like him. I talk to him constantly. I harass him constantly. I can't believe he hasn't blocked <laughs> me yet. Um, he's the one guy that I lean on, you know, and so when you talk about like the technical aspects of it, I would say Joseph B is a good guy, great guy to lean on. When you talk about the adjustments and the stuff, I like uh, Poker Joe. Well, I uh, I think you said it well there yourself. I didn't want to kind of go go too far, but I know you're you're a regular on the the betting forums, or I think you were at least at, at one point. And I wouldn't say annoying people, maybe just stoking debate amongst uh, other bettors with with maybe some cr- contrasting opinions. But I th- I feel like one of the things you've spoken to me about, and I've I've seen a lot from you in the past, is this. It seems like a, a bit of a gripe with the the general perception of of betting. Or, or betting the quote-unquote right way. Um, so can you maybe talk to us a little bit about why you think, or where you think other people are going wrong and, and exactly why that is? Well, I mean, I, I, okay, let, let's talk about the biggest pet peeve that I have. I hate manipulators. I hate people that, you know, manipulate a line and then go bet it somewhere else and, you know, play all kinds of games with the numbers and then end up, you know, with some positive line value because they, have manipulated the numbers. I can't stand that part of the business. I, I, I manipulation in, in and, and are you talking about people that maybe bet one side to bump the other side and get on it, or are you talking about people that maybe get others to to bet on a side so they can get the value? Oh no, it, it's the ones that do it in a in a big thing where they they call them betting partners. You know, they go in there and they get a hundred people to go bet. You know, five hundred bucks on one side, and then they go jump dump. You know. 50 grand on it once the number moves. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Those guys are bad guys. And they're just using up the, you know, the resources of the regular guy that doesn't really understand. The regular guy that doesn't understand is like, man, wow, I got great value on this. You know, the line moves, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Because you and a thousand other people bet the same thing for one guy. And as soon as your account's limited and you're kicked out of there, then he's going to move on to the next guy. I hate those guys. And I kind of have a little problem with the coupon clippers. I, I, I don't, I don't want to say that I, I completely dislike them, but when I say coupon clippers, I mean guys that just shop value. You know, they're just sitting there. They're saying, okay, Pinnacle has minus 120. Where can I find it at plus 105? And they just, you know, that to me is, it's a skill, but I don't see it as, I don't consider those pro betters. I consider those pro shoppers. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess that's that's one way to look at it. I guess it, it comes down to what are what are the motivations of those people, and if someone wants to make their money, then and they're able to do it and find a way to do it, then I think sometimes you've got to got to tip your hat to those people as well, don't you think? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I'm saying I, that's why I say I kind of have a problem because I understand that if you can sit down and design a system and make it awesome, and you've developed a way to be able to still get down with these other bookmakers, and you're using all these people. PH guys, you're doing all this work. It's a lot of work and, and, and it takes skill. I, I, I'm not discounting there's some skill in there. I just don't see that as a guy that models their own number, puts it up, finds value in markets that are there, doesn't manipulate, doesn't shop, just gets good value. I consider that as, in my mind, the typical pro better. And um, if we if we talk about sort of the, it's good to, to get some insight into kind of the the operational side of, of what you do and, and how you go about it. But then there's there's also this element that the bettors have to deal with sort of in terms of the, the psychological elements of betting. And I think one one of the, the key things for bettors to guard against is uh, a lot of the, the behavioral biases and, and things like that that come into play. Is there is there part of you that ever considers that or are you so driven by the market number and that data that, that you kind of try 
to use that and not get swayed either way by by what's going on outside of that? I, I think that the only way that I can use any biases in what I do is against the system. You know, like where I think that, you know, where I see uh, uh, they make an announcement on ESPN that, you know, uh, Ben Roethlisberger is not going to, has a sore thumb. You might see a lot of people jump on that and you can see the line move. So you might use the other side of that. Uh, but I don't, I don't care. I don't care if the Patriots beat someone last week by 45. I don't think that those things mean anything to me. And I, I think that a lot of people, it does. I think a lot of people look at last week and they say, man, this team won by 50 points. How could they lose this week? I, I think that uh, that happens to a lot of people. And I think that's a bad move. I think that people need to put less weight into what happened yesterday. Uh, you know, the perfect example for this and what people should learn and look at, it's, it teaches you by yourself. You don't need any help. Just go look at a series. Look at an NBA series or an NHL series. Look at it. Look at what happened. Team A played Team B in the same arena with the same players. Game one, game two. Game one, they lost by 40 points and they were a six-point favorite. Game two, they were still a five-and-a-half to six-point favorite. And they just lost yesterday to the same team in the same arena by 40 points. That just tells you right there that those things just really don't matter. Uh, an, An NBA series can teach us a ton about betting and can remove a lot of those biases and weird things that we think about. And do you, you, I think you kind of mentioned it there, do you play against that in the sense that having an awareness of biases, maybe not for your own activity, but understanding when the market might move around and and be too volatile, that that making sure you're you're on the right side of that and getting the right number? Yeah, I I think it can play into it, but it only plays into it as if, if the market does that. If the market if if I think the fair line is 12 and something happened yesterday and now all of a sudden people are like, oh, no, it should be 14. The way they played them yesterday, they might move it to 14 or 15. I'm still going to have the same result. You know what I mean? I'm still going to bet it because it's 14 or 15. It's not going to be just because of that bias. The bias might be what got it there, but it's not going to be that I'm looking out for it because of the bias. Well, let's um, before we sort of wrap up, let's talk a little bit. Uh, as we said, we've had a couple of conversations ongoing. I know you're I know you've got a, a lot of iron in the fire and a lot of plates spinning at the moment so can we maybe talk about some of the 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 other projects that you've got going sort of outside of your own betting is it is okay to speak to some of that yeah for sure man for sure because you've got the you've got the exchange and the the app stuff on the go so and i I know it's it's seen a lot of activity so if you can maybe just talk to us a little bit about the the exchange stuff that you're doing why you're doing it and sort of how it works well originally what i did it for was because i thought it was really it was really going to be really cool. I just thought it would kind of be fun to kind of, you know, play around with it and, and kind of, you know, just kind of get into it just to just to see what it was like on the other side of the counter, you know. And then I then I thought, well, it would be cool to set up accumulators or parlays on an exchange. If you get exchange pricing on that, that would be amazing, right? Yeah. So what we're, what we're talking about here is just to kind of clarify for the listeners is you basically offer a product that, that gives people betting exchange prices and allows them to then combine those into multiple bets like a, an accumulator and a parlay, right? Yes, exactly. So that, so so when they get the you're, you're getting better prices on parlays and you're getting more options so that you can parlay different things together. I mean, you know, there's not like the all the limitations that you normally find in uh, that you normally find in, you know, in regular in a regular let's say a traditional sports book. And would the plan then be so do you want to get to a point I mean, you said you're a guy who kind of enjoys the sweat of of watching the bets come in and and stuff like that. Is it going to get to a point where you move more towards the other side of the counter, as you said, and it's almost like you're you're looking for kind of where you're opened up and, and stuff like that, and you're almost sweating kind of the opposite end of it, if, if you see what I mean. 
Yeah, well, you know, the biggest thing when I first started it, it was kind of like just like this fun little project or something. But now there's so much learning. I've learned so much about better behavior, you know, how bets are made, um, the tendencies of people, uh, how people, I mean, you learn so much about them. You can learn so much. I mean, if you told me that better 17, you know, guy, guy named Frank who bets, if you told me, Hey, he's going to bet today, I could tell you what he's going to bet before he even picks up the, opens the website. You know what I mean? And is that, I mean, obviously it doesn't really make a great tip when you're taking exchange prices on the product, it doesn't matter because you can't then, it doesn't, you're not really going to shift prices around or anything like that. But is that then used in sort of your, your side of things when you're betting to, to learn how these people act? Well, it just teaches me a lot of how people bet and it teaches me a lot of how they, how they influence lines and where they make, you know, where they make adjustments. And I'm talking about guys that make decent sized bets. I'm not talking about $5 betters. I'm talking about guys betting, you know, 500 bucks, 800,000 bucks a game. And I'll tell you, man, they are the most consistent. Betters are the most consistent thing you've ever seen. I did, I never knew that until I seen, the, you know, this app data. And what, uh, so what is, what is the plans that these two things can always run alongside each other? Are, are you going to do the, the exchange app stuff? And, and continue betting? Do you want to move to to more the, the exchange parlay things that you're doing? What what are your plans? Um, no, I, I think that the app has kind of grown and I, I think that the app has kind of grown and I, I think that it's going to be something that, it, you know, if it can keep it sustained, I, I would, I would willing to expand it, making it better, you know, doing some things. You know, like a, one of the things that I really liked is... I kind of shop a bunch of different websites, you know, betting sites. And me and you talked about this before. I don't know if you remember, but we were talking about how a sports book could have really good line and they put up a game. They put the Broncos versus the Giants and they put that game up and a better goes to the site, the betting site. I'm talking about the sports book. They see the Broncos versus the Giants. And the first thing that they do is they leave the site and they go somewhere else to get their statistics to find out how the Broncos did in their last seven. Um, you know, all these things that they leave the actual sports book to go somewhere else to get this data. And in my mind, that's why I thought of the better site stuff, which is like the new thing that I'm starting out now, is that data needs to be right there in front of and it needs to be customizable so they can get the data that they want on the sports book without leaving the sports book. Because once they leave your sports book and go somewhere else, there's going to be a million affiliate links. There's going to be tons of stuff that's going to take their energy and take them somewhere else. And they may never even come back to your sports book ever. I mean, it's, it's interesting then seeing you, you talked a lot about sort of the behavior of bears in terms of their actual bets. I mean, you're you're into the realms of sort of UX, UI, you know, real sort of user experience stuff that you're doing and, and properly building like a, a fully packaged product. So, I mean, the question would then be it. The, the 12, 14 hours a day or whatever it was you said you put into betting, how much time are you then putting into product development and stuff like that? And it's, it's how do you, how do you value either of those two things? If, if the money is being made from, from your own betting, but you, you kind of got this cool side project on the go, how, how do you split your time up? I would say 80% of my time goes to my betting stuff. That's how I pay the bills. But I would say I have, you know, one full time coder that's pretty much just working on, you know, coding stuff for me on a daily basis all day long. And I have one, uh, I would call him assistant helper, uh, kind of a smart guy who kind of overlooks what he does. So I can pretty much give them my ideas and my thoughts in a blink of an eye and then go right back to regular work. So it really doesn't take a lot of my work time, but I can still put a lot of energy into what they're doing. So it's, it's better site, isn't it? I think is the, correct me if I'm on the, is the product still in development? I mean, I've been lucky enough to, to see some of it and I must say I'm, I'm pretty impressed with, with what you've managed to do up until this point is it have you got sort of a full launch date in mind or or when do you really want to see this product out there and and people using it i don't know that it will ever be real 
every time that I think that it's perfect, I say, I want to add this. I'm going to change that. I'm going to put these things in. So I don't know that it'll ever be, if it'll ever be a, you know, I mean, at some point I'm going to have to launch it. But it's just like, I talk to a guy like you and you're like, okay, well, what about this? And then I'm like, oh gosh, that's a really good idea. And then I go through and then I look at it and then I say, hey guys, can we add this? And then you know, it just never seems to be ending. You got to make the jump at some point. Yeah. And, and once I launch it, then it's going to be even worse because it's going to be a billion people's ideas that I like and trust. And then I'm going to have to go throw it all away and start all over again. Well, as if that wasn't enough, you've got the, you got your own betting, you've got the, the parlay exchange thing that you're doing as well. You've got, you've also got this, this stuff with simulated sports that we've talked to, to each other a little bit about as well. So maybe just, I mean, we're, we're getting close to our, our hour, but can you just maybe tell us a little bit about what you're doing with simulated sports, why why you think there's a market there for it and, and how things are working on that. Okay, so when sports died originally, I kind of jumped into the simulated sports because I thought it was a good opportunity for me to maybe poach some clients from some books that weren't doing anything that would come to my app to bet on simulated sports. That was the original idea. So anyway, when that, when that process started, a couple of major books like Bookmaker got into the simulated sport game and they were running MLB simulations. But I noticed when I was watching these MLB simulations on Twitch, I noticed that a lot of their late night games, the later in the day the games were, that there was a lot of of, of you know Korean guys in the chat talking about it and showing a lot of interest. And then it just developed from there then? So what happened is, so then I got the idea of like, man, I think it's a great idea to run MLB simulation games, set some good lines, maybe put up a few little props and stuff and run these late at night, you know, later than US hours. These games don't start until 11, 10, 11 o'clock at night, our time, you know, um, Dallas time. And these things have been a hit. My bet activity on these is crazy. And is the, I think you mentioned, was it EA earlier and sort of adjustments for player specific stuff based, based on the, the ratings within EA. So when you're, you're kind of creating your prices, are you basically using the rankings provided by the games or, or how do you, how do you sort of set those odds? I do them the exact same way that I do anything else. I use my regular MLB model, look at the pictures, come up with a money line, put out a money line, create a couple of derivatives off of what I get for a total and off we go. And I do move those lines. Those are not mirrors from anybody or anyone else. I move them. If I get a bet and it seems like I'm getting bet heavy on one side, I'll move it. Well, I think that, I mean, the simulated sports stuff, it could be a, a can of worms. I think we could we could probably chat for a, another whole podcast about that that individually. But I think our, our time's coming to an end. I'm, I'm going to call it a day, Dan, Dan Shannis. It's been really interesting chatting to you. And unfortunately, we're, we're running out of time. But I know it's been a long time coming, this podcast. It's, it's certainly been worth the wait for me. I'm, I'm sure our listeners are going to enjoy it as well. So just want to say thanks a lot for coming on and, and sharing some of your thoughts. Oh, it was great, Ben. And I love talking to you and I hope we talk again. Good stuff. And and anyone who does want more help with their betting, we've got thousands of articles on the betting resources section of the Pinnacle website. There's also plenty of other podcast series and videos out there to help you empower your betting. And, and you'll find all the relevant links to those in the description of this podcast. Make sure you subscribe on all of those relevant platforms as well. Thanks for listening and bye for now. <laughs>